We're going to finish Mark chapter 4 today. Mark chapter 4. And we'll be in verse 35 in a moment. This new section that we're beginning today runs from chapter 4, verse 35, over to chapter 5, the end of the chapter, verse 43. So all of that. And what we're going to read about are four miracles. We've talked about the fact that Mark emphasizes Jesus' actions more than his teaching. And we just had a pretty extended segment of his teaching, the parables we've taught through. And now it shifts back to action. So the the four miracles that we're going to read about today, the storm at sea, and then we'll see the demon-possessed man. Remember the story with the pigs? That's next time. And then physical illness, the woman with the issue of blood and the little girl who's dying. Those are the four miracles. And in his clever way, Warren Wiersbe put all those with D's. So the section breaks down this way. We have danger, demons, disease, and death. And we'll, we'll look at that. I'll put that up in the next few weeks as we work through the section. So danger, demons, disease, and death. Think back with me. Some of you don't have to think very far. But think back with me to being in school. And did anyone enjoy pop quizzes? Anybody? That was terror in... Uh, we have one. Good for you, Ethan. I'm happy for you. Let's give him a pop quiz right now. Exactly. Pop quiz, it, it puts fear and terror. I know this isn't the way you all do it now in school, you young people, but that whole idea of get out a half sheet of paper and put your books on the floor. And here we go. And it could be that this is a normal quiz for the class, or it might be that the teacher didn't think that you were listening, or this just seemed like a good day for a pop quiz because I'm a teacher and I can do that. <laughs> but it was terrifying. And what we see in this section today is kind of like a pop quiz. What we've seen earlier in chapter 4 is that Jesus challenged the crowds first, and then later his disciples, and said, if you have ears to hear, listen up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was the challenge that he put out there. He wanted them to hear. And we've talked about what that means. To hear biblically is to listen with intention and with listen with attention and listen with the intention of obeying. That I'm not just taking in information, but I am going to do something with that information. So he's told them to hear. He told the disciples to hear. And now he's ready to test them. So I hope you've had a chance to find this passage in Mark 4. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read this passage. This one's short. Verses 35 to 41 in Mark chapter 4. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are thankful that you are here with us today. We are thankful that we can study this familiar section of Scripture. And we rejoice that your word is alive and powerful and that you have something new for us today. So I ask, Lord, for the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would anoint me to preach your word with your power, that you would allow me to speak clearly the words that you want brought out from your holy word. I do pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, anyone joining us online, would have ears to hear. That we would give you our attention. That we would listen with the intention of remembering and obeying what you tell us. You would change us to be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have four ideas for you this morning. That's pretty good for seven verses, isn't it? Four ideas this morning. The first is God allows trials. That's in verse 37. Second is that God is with us in trials, verse 38. God can deliver us from trials, verse 39. But God can also strengthen us in and through the trials. And those are the last two verses, verses 40 and 41. So we'll go through those ideas one at a time, and you can see that we won't get to the first one for a couple of verses. So I'm going back to verse 35. You can join me there. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. On the same day. The same day actually reaches back all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. You can turn back there if you want to, or, or scroll back. What has happened? First, Jesus cast out a demon. And we know that from the parallel account of Matthew. We talked about it when we covered it that part of chapter 3. When he did that, the religious leaders accused him of doing it in the power of Beelzebub. It is by the power of Satan that he's casting out demons. That's what they said. So the religious leaders we know are already against him, and they are accusing him. That's a great way to start your day. We also know that his family thought he was crazy, and they came, and they were waiting outside the door. Why did they come? To take him arrest him, basically, to take him in a straitjacket back home for some rest till they could talk some sense into him. So the religious leaders against him. And his family thinks he's crazy. And then he taught the multitude, but he eventually had to get out in a boat because so many people were coming and just wanting to grab his clothing or be touched by him so that they could be healed, and they were getting rough. And he said, okay, I'm going to get in the boat. I'm going to teach from the boat. And what he taught when he got in the boat, we know, are these parables. And we've spent the last two weeks looking at four different parables about the seed, the word of God, and the kingdom. All of that has happened in a day. And now we're getting to the end of the day. And it says, on that same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. So he's taught the parables. He has explained them to his disciples, we know. Then he says, okay, we're going to go over to the other side. He's going to give his disciples a test. He's going to find out if they have been listening, if they have been understanding. Romans 10, 17 says that God's word is intended to produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
So the word of God, when it is heard and received properly, should produce faith. And he's going to test their faith. When it says evening had come, apparently this is beginning at the end of the day, sundown, the beginning of the next day to them. And this storm happened during that evening. When it says he said to them, he's talking to his disciples. They are in a boat together. So the 12 that he had called in the previous chapter. And he says, let us cross over. If you mark in your Bible, underline or circle, let us cross over. Jesus told his disciples that they were going to cross over to the other side. Notice that he did not say, we're going to go get in the middle and there's going to be a storm and our ship is going to turn over and we're all going to drown and die. That's not what he said. He said, we are going to cross over. What had he told them and the crowd and probably said several times by now, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to my words. They weren't listening. We probably wouldn't have been either. But they weren't listening. They did not hear him say, let us cross over. They're just, what they're hung up on, frankly, is the other side. Why? Well, you can be on the lookout for that phrase as well. As we read through Mark, as you look through Matthew and, and Luke and John, that phrase, going to the other side of the lake, usually means going from Jewish territory to Gentile territory or vice versa. It means we're departing from one people group to another, one ethnicity to another. And how would that strike them? We're going where? See, on the other side of the lake, there weren't cities right there on the, on the edge of the lake, but there were a group of 10 cities called the Decapolis, Gentile area. And Jesus is about to expand his ministry. And he knew that. But why on earth are we going to the Gentiles? It, it was, they're already in sort of a, a mixed area of Jews and Gentiles particularly where he's from in Nazareth, up that direction. And he says, let's go to the other side. Verse 36, Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. When they left the multitude, it is not specifically stated, it's not explicit, but I think what's going on here is Jesus is needing to get away from the crowds. Think of the day that he has had at this point. There are other times in the Gospels we read that he and his disciples, he said, come come apart. Let's, let's get away from the masses. And that seems to be what's going on. They're already on a boat. So when it says they took him as he was, they're on the boat. They didn't go back for snacks. They didn't go back for packing. They just said, okay, let's go. Let's go across the lake. So he's finished his sermon, his parables. And he says, let's go. We're going to go over to the other side. And they leave the multitude. And it says they took him along. Who did? His disciples. And in my mind, I'm thinking especially the fishermen, Peter, James, John, Andrew. They took him along. They're taking responsibility for Jesus. Okay, we're the sailors. We've got this. We're going to get you to the other side. That's where you say you want to go. We're not sure we want to go there with you. But you said we're going to go there, so we're going to go there. Just as he was. And it says other little boats. Only Mark mentions other little boats. Matthew and Luke have this same account. But what we have here, Mark is writing. Mark was not there. He's not an eyewitness, but he is probably getting his information from an eyewitness. Who? Peter. So Peter was on the boat, and some of these little details that Mark has are probably because Peter told him what the others may not have known. We'll, we'll come back to those other little boats. Why are they there? I'm not totally sure. I'll give you a theory when we get to the end of the story. 
But if nothing else, it's telling us somebody knew the details, and that there were other boats in their little flotilla. Now we're getting to verse 37. So this is our first point for this morning. God allows trials. Because what we read in verse 37 is that a great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. A great windstorm. This is, somebody said, a sudden furious storm of hurricane proportions. And some of you are familiar with this. We have some guests here who live on Lake Waccamaw. Others of you, you've been on a lake You've been on the ocean when a big storm has come up. We have people who've been in the service in the Navy and, and others who aren't here today who are in the Coast Guard. So you understand a storm can make a mess when you're out on the water and it can get very choppy very fast. This lake, we've talked about before, it is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. And it has the Mediterranean on one side and Mount Hermon on the other. And it has hills, we could call them mountains, going up steeply from the lake. And what happens is that winds come through the ravines, the canyons, and one wind from one side or the other can stir up the water and it can go from smooth as glass to super choppy in just a matter of minutes. And that's what happened here. It would be almost like a hurricane or a tornado or a water spell. And what's happening is that the waves are beating into the boat. Let's talk about the boat for a minute. This would be a sailing vessel and some, I don't remember now, a few decades ago, they found one that was in the mud, had been in the Sea of Galilee, and they have it in a museum outside now. They restored it over a period of time. But we're talking about a boat that might be seven or eight feet wide and, I don't know, 20 feet or so. It's going to allow 15 people at most to be on it. And how many are there right now? 13. So it's kind of reaching capacity. And these boats had low sides on purpose because they were fishing vessels. So that made it easier to cast the net into the sea and then to drag it back out. So the sides are low, and now we have waves coming, and they are lapping into the boat. And it says there that it was already filling. It's in the process. It's not full. They're not going down yet. But it is in the process of filling up. Danny Aiken, in his commentary, talked about the storms of our lives. The trials and tribulations and the difficulties are the moments when God does his greatest work in our lives. When he brings us to the end of ourselves, we are driven to him and him alone as Savior and Rescuer because if he does not act, we will not be saved. There are times in our lives, and maybe you can think of specific examples in your own life, where God drove you to the end of yourself. Some of you are smiling. Some of you can think of times. There was nothing else that I could do. I cried out to God. He save me. And obviously we all do that in terms of salvation, realizing I can't do anything about my sin problem. God, I need to be rescued. And there may be times when you were in physical danger. There may be times that you were fearful. There may be times when you were in a trial that was beyond anything you had ever faced before. And you were asking God for help. The trial was causing you to run to him, to find shelter in him. So that is our second point that God is with us in our trials. The fact that Jesus is on board with them does not prevent them from being in the storm. It doesn't prevent us from having trials in our lives. There are people, unfortunately, some of them are probably on TV or on the internet right now, 
preaching today that if you get saved, your life is going to be wonderful and you are going to have your best life and you are going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and well-rested and a beautiful person. All just by giving your life to Jesus. It's all going to be wonderful from now on. I'm sorry, folks, that's not true and that's not the Bible. Amen. I wish it were. That would be kind of fun. But that's not the way it works, is it? So having Jesus in the boat with them doesn't make them immune from storms. Do we understand that? Our, our life isn't just going to be hunky-dory from now on once I give my life to Jesus. In fact, it will probably get harder, probably. but for a reason. Amen. Whether it's sickness or poverty or a natural disaster or death or illness, John Phillips said what he promises is not his protection from the storm, but his presence in the storm. He's with you in the storm. I have several verses I'm going to share from other parts of the Bible in the rest of this sermon. And if one of them speaks to you, write down the reference or write down the whole thing and meditate on it this week. Here's one. Hebrews 13, 5. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with us. One of the names of God from Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Jesus. That's how he's described in Matthew. Matthew quotes that passage in chapter 1. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he will never, ever leave us by ourselves. He will not forsake us. But it kind of looked that way to them. He's there. He's in the boat. But look at verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep, on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They may have all asked that question. In my own imagination, I'm thinking Peter might have been the one who asked that question. <laughs> this is the gospel account that is his eyewitness. But that's what they ask. He's, a, he's asleep on a pillow. Why would he be asleep? Because he's tired. He's exhausted. I just ran through all the stuff that he did that day. He has religious leaders who are criticizing him, actually accusing him of being in cahoots with the devil. And his family thinks he's crazy, and the mob just all want a piece of him, literally. As soon as I touch him, I'll be healed. Which, to an extent, was true. If they had faith and it was his will, he would heal them. But they just all want, want him, and he's tired. This shows us his humanity. We see in this seven-verse passage, we get Jesus is fully human. And we'll see Jesus is fully God. One person said, The Lord's sleep was not only the sleep of weariness, it was also the rest of faith. Jesus had confidence in his father's plan. He could have been worried about a lot. These religious leaders want to kill me. They're already plotting my death. One of these days, I'm going to get stampeded by the mobs. These disciples are slow as anything. I gave them the easiest parable and they didn't get it. He could have been had a lot of things running through his mind, keeping him awake. And they weren't. Because he knew his father's plan. It wasn't time to die yet. There was a specific way he was going to die. And that wasn't in a shipwreck. So he could sleep 
in a strange place, right? I love what I read in David Jeremiah's study Bible this week. Safety is not the absence of trouble, but rather the presence of Jesus. They were looking at the storm around them, and they're scared to death. Remember, they're fishermen. They're used to being on this lake. They've been on this lake all their life. And this is scary. But what they don't recognize is that they're with Jesus. And Jesus says it's okay. If he's taking a nap, it's okay. No matter how bad it looks, it's okay. Being with him, his presence, is what allows us to be safe. When you're lying in your bed at night, I'm just assuming this happens to you all too, and you can't sleep, and you feel like there's weight on your chest because of something that you're worried about. Here's another verse for you. Psalm 4, 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Where's my safety from? It's from God. I can be in the most dangerous spot on earth right now. And if that's where God wants me, and he has work for me to do, I'm safe. And it feels pretty safe right here, right now. Whatever trial you may may be going through, I'm not diminishing that. But we are safe in the arms of Jesus, are we not? If you are trusting Jesus, we can extend the analogy, but he is in the boat with you. He is with you. He is going to protect you. We are all immortal until he's finished with us, right? Right. How that saying goes? But what do they do? They awoke him. That's interesting. Because the wind we know had to be howling. And the boat is doing this kind of thing. And the water is splashing. And he's asleep. It doesn't wake him up. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but some of you in the room may be very sound sleepers. Nothing wakes you up. You hear the storm last night? No. I slept like a baby. Speaking of babies, I have observed, and maybe you have too, and I've heard this is true of other people, that a mother with a newborn can fall asleep very quickly and sleep very soundly. Sleep through anything, you would say, except for one thing. What what will wake her up? That baby cry. That baby stirs, that... A little breathing thing that little babies do. And that can be three rooms away and she hears it. And that's Jesus. What wakes him up? His babies. His babies. <laughs> the cry of his disciple. Master! Teacher! That's what wakes him up. Not the storm. He's not worried about the storm. He's asleep. But they cry out and he wakes up. And what do they call him? They say teacher, or if you look at the parallel accounts, they say Master. So they're recognizing that he is a religious teacher, right? He is. That's true. Who are they? Several of them are experienced fishermen. And they think they're going to drown. And who do they ask help from? Teacher. What else is he? He's a carpenter. It's probably a little late for him to help them with their boat. But they're calling out for help. Why? Because they sense that he can help. They don't know what else to do. Wherever you are in your storm today, if you're in a storm... You may not know what else to do. You need to call out to Jesus. Cry out to him. He's ready. He is, as God, he doesn't sleep. He is ready to hear and to help. They knew he was their teacher. Some of them by this point may have suspected that he was the Messiah. But at that moment, 
How did they feel? Like he doesn't care. To me, that takes a lot of nerve, but I know I've probably done the same thing. Jesus, don't you care? It is a bad question, but it's a real question. It is exactly how they were feeling. Jesus, don't you care what's happening to us? They're questioning his love for them, his concern for him, for them. Someone wrote, the disciples panicked because of the storm. It threatened to destroy them. And Jesus seemed to them unaware and unconcerned. So as we think about the storms of our lives, the anxiety, what's keeping you up at night right now? You have two options. You can see that storm in your life and you can think, Jesus doesn't care. Or you can choose to trust him. I don't understand this right now. I don't even like this right now. But I'm choosing to trust you in it. Those are our choices. What did they pick? They picked... You don't care. So a, a couple weeks ago, I don't know how many weeks ago, two or three, I shared with you after sitting under the same pastor for eight years in Georgia, there was one thing that stands out to me more than any. I'm about to share you the one from Maryland. The pastor from Maryland, five years or so. I heard many sermons. He said many good things. I'm not discounting that. But I am saying there's one that I remember. And that one thing I remember is that God exists and God cares. God exists and God cares. Well, where are you getting that? I'm glad you asked Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is what? Impossible. Without faith, let's remember that as we get into the story further. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe two things. Thing number one, he is. God exists. If you're going to come to God, you have to believe that God exists. Makes sense, doesn't it? Second, and that he is a rewarder. What does that tell us? God exists. God cares. God exists. God cares. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You need God this morning, and we all do, but you acknowledge that I need God, you call out to him, you come to him. He will meet you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right? Amen. That's what James told us. That's right. What about this? I've said that Peter is influencing this account. We know he is. I strongly believe. I guess I shouldn't say I know. His own epistle, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. That's fancy words that just says some people don't keep their word. God does. That's what Peter's saying. As some count slackness. But his long-suffering, he's patient with us. Long-suffering is toward people. Patience toward people. Not willing that any should, what is that word? Perish. Guess what word we have here. It's the same word that's in our passage in Mark. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And I know the meaning is different. Here we're talking about perishing eternally. In the boat, they're thinking perishing physically. I realize that, but it's the same word, and it means the same thing. God is not willing. He does not want anyone to perish, but wants all to do what? That everyone would come to repentance. Turn from the course of death. Turn to God. Repentance. He exists and he cares. He is not willing that any should perish. Third main point from today. God can deliver us from trials. Verse 39. Then he arose. He did two things. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea. 
peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When it says he rebuked, literally he ordered, like a military term. He commanded the wind and said to the sea. What did he say to the sea? Literally, this says, be silent, be muzzled. We might say, shut up and be still. That's the idea. Now, those of you who are familiar with storms at sea or storms on a lake, and if you're not familiar with that, young people, think about playing with toys in the bathtub, okay? You've, you've made all these waves, right? You've made all these waves, you play in the bathtub, and then your mom or dad says, stop, you need to get clean, and you stop, and you're still. Does the water come down, calm down right away? Think. Does it? It takes a while. So what we have is this big storm, and the wind has been howling, and it's made the water all choppy. And he says, be quiet and be still. And immediately, it's like glass. It's like there had been no storm. Some people have pointed out this is the second miracle. The first miracle is that the wind stopped. The second is that it is smooth as glass again. It doesn't take hours, which is probably what it would take with this kind of storm. It would take hours for that choppy, just think when a boat goes by and you have that wake and you're surprised how much effect that has many feet away. It's all just calm. He settles everything down for them. Now what's interesting to me is that these words, rebuke and be still, were used back in chapter 1. And do you know what he was doing there? He was casting out a demon. Same words. Which suggests that this may be a storm that was caused by demonic forces. That Satan is at work. All right. The Son of God is asleep. This is the time I'm going to get it. Maybe. What's the next scene when they get there? What's going on? We have a legion of demons in this one man. And they know he's coming their direction. So this is the same terminology used earlier for an exorcism. And it says the wind ceased, it stopped suddenly, there was a great calm, it's perfectly calm, total instant calm. What about those other little boats? When Jesus, maybe I should back up, when the disciples called out to Jesus, cried out and said, Master, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? He responded. He responded to their pleas. And whoever was in those other boats, maybe other disciples, maybe some of the crowd, we don't really know, whoever it was, was rescued as well. Say, I'd love to know what was going on in those other boats. What were they thinking about this storm? They didn't have Jesus in their boat. They may not have heard the instruction that Jesus said, we're going to the other side. But all of them were rescued. All of them were saved. So sometimes God delivers us from the trial, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he strengthens us in and through the trials. So I realize that in this scenario, Jesus rescued them. He stopped the storm. But then he has something to teach them. And whether he stops the storm or whether he leaves us in the storm, he has stuff to teach us, doesn't he? Think of Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
he had a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, and he asked God specifically to remove this messenger of Satan from him. Take it away, Lord. Take it away. And he asked for that three times. And did God say yes or no? God said no. But he also said, my grace is sufficient. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When you are weak, Amen. I'm at my best. Amen. And the passage goes on. Therefore, Paul says, I will glory, I will rejoice, I will be glad that I'm weak, because that's when he's strong. Amen. So back to our story, verse 40. He already rebukes the wind, right? He rebukes the wind. He spoke to the waves. Now he's going to speak to his disciples. And there's a little bit of a rebuke to them as well. He said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He asks them two questions. And he asks them two questions, and I don't, I think in some ways they were rhetorical. I don't think he was expecting them to say, well, the reason I'm so fearful. How do you suppose these questions are related? You can't have faith if you're afraid. Very good. Fear and faith can't mix. Correct. Fear and faith can't mix. You guys are exactly right. If our lives are characterized by doubt, fear, worry, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us how and where we are trusting Jesus. In what area or areas do we lack faith in him? In this story, he was asleep, but he was there. And they assumed he didn't care. They're bailing water like crazy, and why are, why are you sleeping? You must not care about our situation. Well, he did. But they didn't believe, maybe they didn't believe he was capable of doing anything about it. Here's this carpenter and teacher. They didn't expect him to get up and calm everything down in an instant with a word. They didn't have faith in him. When it says fearful, literally, it's cowardly. Maybe your translation has that. He's rebuking them for being fearful, for being cowards. And it's not that he's saying there was no danger. That was all in your mind. That's not it. He's rebuking them because they didn't believe he could save them. I commend them that they went to him. They cried out to him. They asked for help. That's good. But they also accused him of not caring, not loving, not taking care of him. This was in one of my study Bibles. And I know it didn't originate with them, but the antidote for fear is faith. Amen. If I have fear, if I have doubts, if I have worry, if I have anxiety, there are times I do. I bet you do too. I'm not trusting God. Sometimes I don't know in what area I'm not trusting God. I need the Holy Spirit to lead me and show me that. But I need to have faith in God. He says, how is it that you have no faith? John Phillips points out, faith always has an object. It is always faith in something. 
Faith in the stock market. Faith in your spouse. Faith in God. If you're going to have faith, if you're going to have belief, it will be in an object or in a person. They did not have faith in him. It, it's as if he was saying, how can you not trust me? Maybe there was a perturbed tone of voice. Probably it was softer than what I just did. How can you not trust me? You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me heal lepers. What they hadn't seen yet was him calm a storm at sea. And even if they had, they probably would have forgotten like we do. How can you not trust me? Does that seem harsh to you? He just rescued them, right? He calmed the storm. But then he says, you have no faith. And we, we may bristle at that a little bit. Surely they have some faith. They're following you, right? They, they went with you across the lake. They're, they're trying to pilot the boat for you. Someone said, Jesus could say they had no faith because they did not believe his word. Every one of them heard Jesus say, let us go over to the other side of the lake. He promised a safe arrival. And they could have chosen to remember that promise. They could have chosen to believe that promise. They could have taken him at, at his word, but they didn't. At this point, verse 41 says, they feared exceedingly. Different word. Awe. Reverence. Dread. They feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? I don't know who this is, but it's apparently not who I thought it was, the carpenter from Nazareth, or even the teacher with new teachings with authority. He's obviously something more. Why? Why would they automatically assume, we just saw a miracle with the storm, why would they assume, we don't know who he is? He's greater. He's more special somehow than what we imagine. Well, I won't bring up all of them. There are four or five different passages we can look at in the Psalms. Some of them are kind of lengthy. But there are several times that the Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament is described as the one who calms the sea. I'll share one of them with you. This is Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. And it says, O Lord God of hosts, and Lord is big and small caps, so we're talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, the Creator God. Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So they would have associated anyone who can calm a storm at sea with God. And so now they're in fear and trembling, not because of the storm. It, it seems as you read this, they are more terrified. They are more scared in a different way after he calms the storm. They were afraid for their lives. Now they're in the boat with God. And they're scared in the right sense. Do you realize there, there are some things that it's good for you to be afraid of? Amen. Teach the kids about a hot stove. That's the first one that always comes, comes to mind. There are some things it's good to be afraid of. And it is good to have the right fear of God. Not that he's a mean, nasty ogre ready to zap you with lightning bolts. That is not the God of the Bible. Amen. But we are supposed to have a reverence and yes. awe 
He is greater than I am. He is different. He is holy. He is just. He is kind. He is perfect in all his attributes, all his ways. So they say, who can this be? Who is this? Could this be God? Could this be the Messiah? So in these few moments, shorter than what I've taken to teach it to you, in these few moments that went by, they get to see the humanity of Jesus. He's asleep because he's exhausted. And the deity of Jesus. He is God. He can command the winds and the waves and they will obey his command instantly. When they saw him as God, they were awestruck. If we fear God, we will trust God. If we trust God, we will have nothing else to fear. If we have the right view of God, we will fear Him, we will trust Him, and we will not fear anything else. God allows trials in our lives. He is with us in those trials. He'll go through them with us. Sometimes He delivers us from them altogether. He can do that. There are other times He leaves us in the trial but strengthens us, gives us grace, pours out his all-sufficient grace that is made perfect in our weakness. As we wrap this up, I'd like to work backward for just a minute in the way we apply Mark chapter 4 as a whole. It's taken us, I think, three weeks to get through this. Why did the disciples fear? I believe they feared because they lacked faith. That's what Jesus said. Why were you afraid? Do you still not have any faith? Well, why did they lack faith? They lacked faith because they didn't hear and remember what he had said. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. He is God. He spoke. They didn't listen. They didn't remember. Therefore, they didn't have faith. They didn't have faith. They're fearful. You with me? Why did they fear? They lacked faith. Why did they lack faith? They didn't hear or remember what he said. Why didn't they hear what Jesus said? Go back a couple weeks. The parable of the soils. They did not have ears to hear. Their hearts did not have the right kind of soil. They were not ready to receive the word of God when he spoke it. So how did you do on your last pop quiz of faith? And maybe more importantly, how are you going to do this next week or this next month, whenever the next one comes? Your pop quiz of faith. The next time your faith is tested. I'm going to offer you one more scripture, and I know it's familiar to you. I love Psalm 23. You probably do too. Psalm 23, first part of verse 4. I want you to notice three things. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What does it say? What did David say? Yea, though I walk through... Just like Jesus said, let us cross over to the other side. Jesus says through David, the Holy Spirit writing through David, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's awful. It's the worst thing ever. The shadow of death. But he's going through the valley. And no, he's not stuck there. I will fear no evil. I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? The Lord 4 explains why. Because 
you are with me. So this super familiar verse, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, you are with me. Gotta know three things. I walk through, I will fear not, you are with me. So when you get to your pop quiz, and it could be today, it could be Wednesday, it could be I don't know. I don't know, God knows. Are you going to remember? Whatever it is, I'm going through it. I may be going through it, he's taking me home through it, but I'm, I'm going through it. And I will not be afraid. I will exercise faith because of the one who is with me. You can prepare your mind, you can prepare your heart for the next trial you're going to face. If anyone here today has never trusted Christ as Savior, you can trust him. Yes, you can trust him in a storm, but don't worry about the storm right now. Trust him to save you from the penalty of sin, of death and of hell. Do you remember what Jesus' name means? It means the Lord is salvation. The rescuer, the lifeguard, the Savior, that's who he is and that is what he does. And you can call on him and believe on him today. Many of you have done that. What trials are you facing right now? What are those trials revealing about your faith or the lack thereof? What are you worried about? Will you choose to trust him? Because he is worthy of your trust. He's a trustworthy God. You can pray to him for deliverance in that trial. There's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to Count these trials joy. We're supposed to rejoice in the tribulation, but we don't have to say, Lord, bring it on. Give me more tribulation. Give me more trials. We can pray for him to deliver, to deliver us, and he might do it. Sometimes he does. He's capable of it, for sure. But whether he delivers you or not, you can trust him to be with you, to stay with you, to strengthen you by his grace. Will you choose to trust him? He's a trustworthy God. You can trust him. Just bow your heads. Close your eyes. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I hope that's the prayer of your heart. I hope you can sing that. But there may be something that... The Holy Spirit is working on in your heart right now an area that you have not been trusting Him. Yes, I understand. When we're in a trial, we have to give things over to Him, give them back to Him, sometimes moment by moment, second by second. I get that. But are you trusting Him? Are you believing that He is able either to remove the trial or to sustain you in it? Are you believing that he is and that he's rewarded, that he exists and that he is good? Are you going to trust him, regardless of how it looks to you? God, I'm dying here. That's what they said. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to stand and sing. If there's a decision that you need to make, you feel free to stay where you are, stay seated, pray, do business with God. If I can be of any help, I would be glad to. Father, we know that you are good. You are kind. You are able. We read also in one of Peter's epistles that 
the Lord knows how to deliver those out of temptation and trial. He knows how to deliver his people. And we know you can do that, Lord. And there may be someone here that you're about to deliver him or her out of a trial today. And we will praise you for that gladly. But Lord, so often you leave us in trials temporarily, sometimes for the rest of our lives. But to teach us. And Lord, we're about to sing Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. But Lord, we need the grace to trust you more. So, Lord, would you pour out your grace on us in our weakness? And may those who need to cry out to you and, and fall on your grace again do it this morning, that we would find you sufficient in our weakness, that we would see you comforting and defending and sustaining us in our trials, that we would bring you glory in them because we know that they are ultimately for your glory and for our good. Pray that you would do a work in our hearts in Jesus' name.